0: You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy.
1: Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan, and I am excited because it's been a couple of weeks since our last episode, and I've got some great new content for you to enjoy. Today I had a woman named Paige come on the show to share about her experiences, not just with bipolar disorder, but also borderline personality disorder. She spends a lot of time talking about the similarities and differences between these two conditions, and it made for a great conversation. Be advised that this episode contains in-depth conversations about domestic violence and suicide, so if those are topics that make you uncomfortable, you may want to skip this episode. Hi, welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. I am joined tonight by Paige. Paige, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing pretty well. How are you?
1: I'm pretty good. We were just kind of recapping our weeks before we started, and it sounds like we both had a pretty good Christmas. So I'm hoping that we'll carry over into the new year. But in this crazy life, who knows what will happen at this point? I wanted to start by asking... Do you mind sharing your formal diagnosis
0: with the audience? Sure. Um, I have multiple diagnoses, and they were kind of diagnosed at different points in time. Um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, uh, major depressive and anxiety when I was like 15. Later, it wasn't until like 12 years later that they finally diagnosed him with ADHD, which was like the whole catalyst for causing all of the other problems to occur. Okay, so
1: were you diagnosed with bipolar at 15,
0: did you say? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the majority of the diagnoses were at 15, but since I'm such an extrovert, they didn't pick up on the ADHD until later on in life, even though I was for the whole time.
1: So what was going on around age 15 that wound you up with a bipolar diagnosis and some other comorbid diagnoses
0: as well? Um, Well, my father was extremely mentally and emotionally and verbally abusive. Mm -hmm. And even though I lived with my mom, most of the time I still had to go to his house for visitations, you know, every other weekend or when my mom would go to work. So, um, I develop for, see, I believe personally borderline, some people argue it, but I believe borderline personality disorder is developmental and it neuroanatomically changes the structure of your brain. So the different connections and wirings that are supposed to be one way have changed to another and have shifted and your brain does change in structure. And since my my father's abuse but my father was also bipolar and he never wanted to be diagnosed anyway but we know it was it's genetically from him and I also believe that he was also borderline but the way that he was towards me as a kid especially during that developmental stage I developed that um sorry I lost train of thought of what, what the original question was but yeah yeah you,
1: I, I was just asking um you know kind of what led to your diagnosis yeah. bipolar and for borderline and kind of if there were any like key events
0: that led to that okay uh, so my mom was a nurse for four years too so she was very highly aware of the different mood changes that I was experiencing but what I was saying about my father was the reason I started getting a therapist was because of my father And so then that started getting me into other therapists and things like that. And things just, I acted out more with him than I did with my father, but because of him, I take it out on my mother. So it became this volatile, impulsive, erratic type of situation. And then I ended up trying to commit suicide when I was 16. But before then I was already starting to be kind of evaluated for things. And it was just because my mom was a nurse and she's like, Seeing all these different behaviors and stuff, and knew something was wrong.
1: Well, that's good that your mom at least recognized it. I'm so sorry to hear that you had that abusive factor in your childhood. That sucks to say mm-hmm. the least. Um, and you're right. You know, there's genetic components to a lot of mental health stuff, but sometimes environment plays a huge factor as well. So. I don't know. Do you think that maybe you were genetically predisposed to it because you said your dad was borderline as well? And then, kind of, that developmental aspect that you were talking about just exacerbated things?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, since I, I, this the whole nature nurture argument, but they play off of each other.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: you're going to change your psychological behaviors depending on your environment. So if you're in this, you're going to be conditioned to be this way in this environment if the environmental pressures are enough. So the environmental pressure here was my father, but I'm also, you know, I was not diagnosed yet. I wasn't medicated properly yet. So I was already genetically predisposed because of the bipolar. So that wasn't being corrected during the times that I was developing borderline personality disorder as a kid from the abuse. because that's usually where borderline stems from as abuse as a child. Um, so I think, and and also you got to think about the fact that bipolar symptoms and borderline symptoms are very, very sim- similar. One you you treat with psychotherapy, and the other you treat with, you know, psycho psychopharmacology. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's it, it's very hard to delineate between the two, but there are very distinct features that. Define between borderline and bipolar even though they're very slight so I think so I really do that if you have one you're like okay for instance if I you know I'm bipolar and I grew up in a happy environment and everything in, in my environment is great and I don't and it's, it's hard it's going to be harder for me to develop the borderline I think if you're you have that combination of both you're more likely to.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And let's take a step
1: back for the audience, because this is obviously a bipolar-themed show, but you also have borderline personality disorder as a comorbid condition, and some people may not be familiar with what borderline personality disorder or BPD is. Um, How would you describe borderline personality disorder in your own words, and how does it compare to bipolar?
0: in terms of behavioral symptoms or in terms of neurologically? Because I could go either way here.
1: Yeah, I I guess what I'm referring to would be more like behavioral symptoms.
0: Okay, so one very distinct feature of borderline personality disorder that I've found, because like I said before, they're very, very, very similar in symptomology. So it's very hard to you know, diagnosed one without the other one with the other, you know, um, is the body dysmorphia. I, I found a lot of people with bipolar, they don't exactly have the body dysmorphia like I do, which is a very key fact, like key symptom to borderline personality disorder. Um I'm trying to think another one I would I would pick out is probably a very high level of codependency um It's all about. I, I was thinking about this earlier. It's all about imagery. I think with borderline personality disorder, you're so thinking about it as personality, whereas bipolar, you're thinking about it with a mood shift. You know, the bipolar, it's, it's more mood regulation, whereas borderline personality disorder affects all your. You're triggered by the emotional aspects, but it's more revolved around your self-image and who you are as a person and your personality. So you, it's it's an identity conflict, I felt. And okay. it's it's also like cutting yourself, self-mutilation, things like that. Are, I mean you have that with bipolar, but it's just more prevalent, I think, with people with BPD. But it's also you could have someone be diagnosed with BPD and they have bipolar or vice versa. So it's hard.
1: Okay. I have a hypothetical for you and I don't know a lot of people with BPD. So this is really interesting for us to talk about But I think a common conception about BPD, maybe that there's a lot of triggers that like really can set someone with BPD off in terms of like just flying off the handle over what may be a trivial matter to to a quote unquote normal person. Does that line up with your
0: experience? Yep, definitely. Like I, the the tiniest, tiniest little thing will just throw me throw me through a loop the tiny yes i i i get triggered very easily like i'll I'll give you an example um when my mom drives me places and she wants to drop me off in front of the store and there are cars behind us i will immediately feel overwhelmed and freak out like Hmm. there's there's no i think with bipolar disorder it's more of like a mood shift so There are times, whereas with borderline, it just could be any time. You know what I mean? It just could be you could be completely happy, and then all of a sudden something like really makes you angry, and it throws. And that, and I think that's where it's deceptive between the moods, the mood disorder. You know, bipolar. So people think, oh my god, they just freaked out out of nowhere, and that's bipolar, but really could be borderline. It could be just their trigger. You know, so it's very, it's it's such a difficult you know, concept, but yes, definitely. I very, very much will just fly off the handle sometimes.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that happens to me when I'm having manic episodes. I wanted to kind of say um, what it sounds like you're saying with BPD is that you can be at baseline. So like everything's fine, but then there's that trigger and it's not related to a mood episode. Is that what you're getting at? That's
0: exactly what I'm saying. And but people will think it's related to a mood episode from the outside perspective. Other people, they'll think it's from a mood episode because you're you radically shifted your behavior so so quickly. You know what I mean? So they think bipolar because of that. So that's why it's a very hard, it's very hard to determine between the two sometimes.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think
0: just one is more based around identity, and environmental stimuli situational stimuli and being overwhelmed that's the, the borderline versus bipolar I think that's more just a natural chemical shift in your in your brain
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense so how has BPD impacted your relationships like platonic or romantic do you find that that makes relationships more difficult I imagine it
0: would right yeah. okay so a little context because it'll make sense for this. I used to be an, I'm 32. I used to be an athlete in high school. So when I was diagnosed at, you know, 15, but then I started meds at like 16 and some of your audience might relate with this. I was, I was doing mountain bike club, snowboarding club, uh, track and field, two softball teams, basketball. Like I was an athlete. I was 150 pounds. And borderline, like I said, body dysmorphia, weight was a very big, image was a very big thing to me. Like, if I'm not skinny, if I'm not athletic, if I'm not this certain weight, then I am horrible. I look awful. I hate myself. I'm terrible. No one should ever love me. I don't deserve anything. But when they put me on meds, I shot up to 285 pounds in a year wow. just for medications. I didn't, I don't eat a lot. I still eat one meal a day like I did then. And it made me severely codependent in relationships. It made me hate myself. Uh, like I self loathed all the time. I would accept toxic relationships because that's what I thought I deserved because I was ugly. I was disgusting. I was fat. I was, you know, my whole entire image of myself was just shifted to this gross person. And so I would take whatever it was, like I would deal with crappy guys. Like I, you know, I, I think I'll get to it later, but I think when I, when I got the right meds, um, 2017 for my ADHD and I lost hundred pounds in a year and I just had a paniculectomy to cut the skin off. So I'm like 180 pounds now and I look great and all that my self-esteem has boosted. I think that alleviated a lot of the borderline personality disorder that I have.
1: Awesome. So. What kind of meds did they put you on that caused
0: such significant weight gain? Risperdal.
1: Oh. Risperdal,
0: yeah. yeah. Oh. And then they put me, I don't, I couldn't tell you all the meds I've been on over the past, over the 12 years. Yeah. So it was 16 to 28. That's how long it took them to figure out that I had ADHD. The ADHD was literally the one thing that wasn't diagnosed that was causing everything else to fall apart, everything else to just run rampant. It was very odd, (laughs) but it took 12 years.
1: What kind of symptoms did the ADHD cause that was making things fall apart? It
0: wasn't the symptoms. They didn't know I had it. It was the fact that my brain was so unfocused, I could not think straight, which would cause me to be overwhelmed. I would trigger the borderline, which would cause it to trigger to anxiety, which would cause a trigger of a depression, you know, and then it would just spiral down into like a suicidal kind of episode, like the moods were being controlled. But since the ADHD wasn't controlling other parts that needed to be controlled, which was the focus, it was a huge focus thing for me. I could not, and it would just cause a lot of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that when I don't smoke pot, I'm, I'm corrected now with ADHD, but I have a medical marijuana card in my state, and it's because I'm very, I'm already an energetic person to begin with, never mind an extrovert. Never mind Aries, which I don't really run off of horoscopes, but it fits me. I'm an Aries. So, yeah, yeah. So you know, you the very high energy, like a husky, and um, so that caused a lot of the the overwhelming, and that and that caused the triggering of the borderline. The, like you're talking about the triggering, but I think also the mood shifts, being overweight, it was just a whole. But the ADHD, I'm just very. I can't focus. And that and that literally was like, yeah, like I said, just causes everything else to go down.
1: So how has all that impacted like normal friendships? I mean, I know you said you kind of wound up with a bunch of shitty guys and you were in really like toxic codependent relationships. What about just casual friendships?
0: That went for every relationship. Every relationship was codependent. I, have, I needed someone to be around me all the time to validate my worth and who I was. I I couldn't do that myself. I hated myself that much that I needed somebody else to tell me that I was an okay person. That That is like true codependency. It, but that was at every level in my life, even friendships. Mm-hmm. I'd have people that come over that would just pity me. They would come over just because they pitied me. And, and it just, but I also just dealt with it because that's what I needed in my brain. Like I, I I couldn't give myself that. So I needed it from everyone else. You know, it took a long time for me to be like, to like myself and not to need that. Now I, it's different. Now, and, and I'll, this makes sense now, but since I was so burned by people in the past, because I, I also behaviorally could pick up on them that they pitied me and all that. I got, I could tell. Yeah. And, and I hated that about myself, but I was so dependent on them being there because I couldn't be alone. And, but now I, it's hard for me to have relationships because now I just believe everyone pities me, even though I don't, even though I don't, because there's there. I don't, I don't want to be around those people. Anyway, if you pity me, I don't even be around you anyway, but I, I have no, I have like two friends that I hang out with now. Very, very picky about the people I'm friends with now. Back then I would have taken anybody because it it would have, anybody would have just told me I'm cool as long as we could get what I had. Like that was the whole thing. They just wanted what I had or, you know, to smoke weed or smoke my weed or whatever, you know, they didn't actually want to hang out with me. They wanted something from me that wasn't me and my personality. So now it's like, do I actually want to hang out with people who are that superficial and like that? And I can't. So it's very, I'm very picky now. And um, I also, I don't act, I I don't, I don't rely on people's words. You have to show me action in order for me to believe you. So that over the years of that too, I think that that being codependent made me learn now being like, you know, Having a lot of self esteem and being confident and liking myself, that there are people out here, out there that just thrive on other people's pain.
1: Uh-huh. And that
0: just to get something out of that, to take advantage of them, you know, and that I have to be selective in the people that I choose and that they have to show me that I am the great person that they say I am. Or else, what do they actually, they don't actually mean it. So. Yep. So are these discoveries that you've made in therapy or independently? Independently, a lot of times. I've had my therapist for like eight or nine years now, and I'll yeah. tell, I'll tell your audience that sometimes it might be good to change up your therapist. Oh you yeah, know? yeah, you, yeah. You yeah. Bad therapist right now? No, I love her. I mean, we've been together for so long though that we're now like friends. Yeah. It's, there's no progress being made anymore. Like now we just argue about politics. You know, talk about politics and what's on TV. You know, there's no actual therapeutic. But now that I have a bachelor's of science in psych, because I'm, you know, I've, and I'm going into behavioral science anyway. I've learned to behavioral analyze, behaviorally analyze myself. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to know when my mood's gonna shift, even with my bipolar. I've just l- trained myself to just be in my brain all the time. Yeah. And yeah, so that that so, is
1: so you have a uh, psych degree now?
0: Yes. Yeah, How long ago did
1: you uh graduate with that?
0: Well, two degrees actually. I just graduated this uh that I just finished. My grade just my last grade just went in yesterday. So nice. very happy. I got a bachelor's of science in criminal justice and psychology and a minors in forensics.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So what was it like taking psychology courses? Because I have a degree in psychology, too. And I remember when I was taking psych classes, I went to Penn State. Mm -hmm. So I would be in these like big lecture halls, like, and we'd be going over abnormal psychology. And I'd kind of be sitting there like I wasn't diagnosed at the time. So I'm kind of like, yeah, that sounds eerily familiar. Did
0: you have a similar experience to that? Um, <clears throat> okay. So when I was 17, my mom put me on SSDI. She's like, she's going to need the help. Goes off my, I get way more student loans, everything. It's it like, if audience, <clears throat> if you're ever questioning if your child is, put them on it. Seriously. It's, it's such a good asset. You get such good help from it. Can you explain so, what
1: SSDI is? Because- um. Yep. Yeah, some people may not
0: know what that is. So SSDI is Social Security Disability Income. Um, a lot of people go on SSDI because they're usually diagnosed like after their teen years in their early you know, 20s. Then it's a tough time to get SSDI. It's hard to be diagnosed later on with a mental disorder by the government than it is as a teenager. So when my when I was 17 and I was already in in and out of psych wards, and my mom being a nurse for 40 years, she put she submitted me and put me on SSDI. But since I was a child technically to the government, it's considered retirement social security disability income. So instead of it going off of my work history, as it would if you applied after like 21 on SSDI. It goes off of your parents' work history and their income. My friend has gone through chemo four times, and he got on SSDI after 21. So just to give you a contrast, he gets about 850, 900. I get almost 1100. This kid's been through chemo four times. You know what I mean? It just goes to show you the contrast in money and the benefits you get, um, and the help you get just by that few that few span of years. So if you're If you're really questioning, you know, if my kid's bipolar, borderline, or any of these mental, chronic disorders that they're going to have to deal with for their life in their 20s, which are going to become more volatile and everything else, get them on it because then it's going to help them go to school. It's going to help them, you know, pay for their rent or whatever they need. And it's going to be that light, that's that backs, that's support that they can rely on, even though, you know, it may feel strange and, I felt like I was just getting getting a handout, and felt wrong, and I was conflicted about it at the same time. In hindsight, I look at it and I'm like, you know. So I went to Quincy, uh, this uh, community college, for like five years until it really kicked me out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but I did a bunch of psych courses, and I'll tell you, though, like they're not like Penn State, you know, like the big, yeah. You know, this is a little, just not the university I graduated from, but this one course. Of, I had it for two courses. She was, this lady was crazy. Um, but she she was teaching chemical dependency. I was taking human services. In the first class, she was talking about serotonin and dopamine. And I wanted to see how much this lady knew. Uh-huh. I raised my hand. And I said, you know, so-and-so, I said, um, does serotonin and dopamine have to do with bipolar disorder? Uh-huh. Fully well-knowing, it does, right? She screams at me, says, no, it doesn't. Shut up and don't say anything again. What is teaching wrong material to future social workers and therapists?
1: Oh, my God. She told
0: me that ecstasy wasn't a street drug. And I wanted to ask her, well, where do you buy it then? Like, I wanted to say that, like, because my topic was ecstasy for my file. Mind you, I broke my wrist that year, so I couldn't even get to class. I had her for, I only had three classes signed up. So, and I had her for two out of the three classes. She she would tell the other students that she hated me. Like, so there's some professors that are like, whoa. And I found out this lady had bone cancer. So I got why, how, like why uh, she was so angry and hostile.
1: Okay. At the same
0: time, you should not be teaching wrong material like that to students.
1: Well, you shouldn't be uh, ridiculing students either when they have a legitimate question that you're supposed to be an expert on,
0: or like when you're in a cast and you can't you know get to class because can I write I was asking, can I write more? Can I do something? But I in Lister State where I you know I'm graduating from. I had a lot of great you know psych professors. I did, but there were smaller classes. You know, you had to have at least ten students. I think the max was like twenty-five, um, but they were smaller classes. We did work online, things like that. They weren't really too much hands-on, um, but yeah, I had some I had some great classes there.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, and at Penn State, you know, it's like some of these lectures would have literally over a hundred people in them. Uh, so much larger class sizes. Um, but you know, yeah. it's, it's whatever. I think in retrospect, a smaller classroom environment probably would have been good for me. Um, but you mentioned ecstasy, uh, were you into ecstasy in those days?
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was a big raver. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> Rave yeah. scene.
1: Oh man. Oh, did yeah. you, uh, did you get anything positive out of ecstasy or MDMA or... That's-
0: it's my favorite it's, it's definitely my favorite uh I definitely love it uh I don't do it very often anymore but mm-hmm. you know
1: yeah that's pretty cool I uh, yeah I did ecstasy a couple of times it was like it was cool it wasn't really my thing though um but I did do a lot of psychedelic drugs too and uh those were awesome Drug use, there's good aspects to it, as terrible as that is to say from a mainstream perspective. You know, it's not all bad, but it can lead to bad places if you're not careful or responsible about it. So,
0: oh, definitely.
1: On that note, I wanted to uh, segue into one of my other questions. First of all, I wanted to congratulate you on five and a half years of sobriety from heroin. That's fucking amazing. Like, that is such a good run. And I was wondering, so just since we're talking about drugs and, you know, there's the good drugs and then there's the bad drugs, I think, would you say heroin is one of the bad ones?
0: Oh, oh
1: yeah. Yeah. A,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah. How did you get clean from heroin? And that that. I'm gonna talk about it because I have no problem talking about it. I just don't I don't say it to a bunch of people because I don't want them to feel like I'm rubbing it in their face or anything. Yeah. But I never went through withdrawals. I did heroin for three years. Um and I was I I had never done it before I met my fiance that the guy I was with. Mm-hmm. And uh, back from 2012, 2014. I'll just say D. I'll say his name is D. Um <laughs> And he was already an opiate addict before I met him. We met in a rave scene, but I had never done any of that. I'm not gonna say that he forced me. I'm not gonna say that it wasn't my choice. I made the ultimate choice to do it. Mm-hmm. I could have said no, even though he had it in the house. I could have just been like, no, nope, I'm not gonna do it. I ultimately made that choice. It was not his fault. I, you know, it's just I say influenced because I wouldn't have been around it unless I was around him. Anyway, heroin, um I uh, I ended up after, that's a whole nother long story. If, if you want to get into, you can if that's fine, but it's it's very long. Whatever you want to share, whatever you're comfortable with. I didn't know how long you wanted me to talk for. <laughs> I could go on, you know, for a long ass time. Um, but the whole, so Dean, to say his name, I'm going to end up saying it anyway. And he's, you know, dead. So um, he was my soulmate. I knew when I first, we hung out. Uh, he had a crush on me for like two years before we actually hung out. And I, I had broken up with a guy before that. Um, we ended up moving in together and doing heroin together. And then things got domestically violent. And it's just, a, but I was also codependent. You got to understand, I was also overweight, codependent. You know, this is what I'm going to accept. I love him. I, I never thought of being in a relationship like that, but it happened. You know, down the road, down the road we ended up just, we moved out of an apartment that we were with roommates, we moved up just together, and it was like June of 2014, and then he was going through withdrawals like crazy. I could not stick myself, so he'd have to stick me, which was so horrible because I have tiny veins and stuff, so then I had to learn how to do it in my leg. I don't have any track marks in my arms, it's in my leg, Um and they're gone at this point, but so had overdosed like twice that point he's going through because the withdrawals are just ravaging it's like you're it's like the flu and then if you don't have the drug then you're going to be like just completely sick and where we were the drug was stronger than where we were before so his calculation was different because of the, the strength of it um of where we were now and on august of 2014, I woke up. I took. I, I told him. I said, "Wake me up when you get home," because he had already fallen. I I know CPR and first aid and all that. Um, I know how to respond, but um, I told him. I said, "Wake me up when you get home," because I'm gonna. I mean, I understand you're doing it because of your withdrawals. Like I was, I was sympathetic to that. You know, I think at that point I was just doing it because he was. I don't think I was like I was addicted, but I I don't know. It was really hard to explain. But um, he didn't wake me up and I woke up to a knock on the door and I sat up from the couch and I look over and he's like, we have like a couch in his desk where he'd do his stuff. And I look over and he's flat face on the floor. And so I screamed, the kid from at the door ran in, we flipped him. I started doing CPR and this is something your audience might find interesting. But um, when the EMTs got there, so I called 911. I went amnesic. I don't remember anything. I don't. I don't remember anything. My mom had to tell me what happened because I don't. I still to this day don't remember. My brain just the, the trauma just shut my entire memory off. Like yeah. I, I just it's like a blank for like twelve hours or so after that.
1: You had my mom associative state.
0: I don't even. I like my it's like a whole memory lapse. Like just I don't know. I I I don't know. It's weird. It was so, it was a very, I, I, had to, I had to know what happened though. So my mom told me, she picked me, because it wasn't very far from where I live here now. Um, she picked me up, brought me to the hospital where he was, but the nurse wouldn't tell us anything. So then I had to call his best friend. And my mom was already driving me to another hospital. I already went to a couple of times. They hate me at that hospital. I'm telling you, funny. Uh. He funny. He told me that he was dead. And I thought he was because he felt stiff. I guess that's what I said to my mom. But on the way to the other hospital, we got there. And like I said, this hospital hates me. They don't like me there. And they had to literally, I I was screaming and freaking out in the parking lot. They had to bring me inside and they still didn't take me, and this scared my mom. I've never hit my mom or anything like. I've always screamed or whatever, but I never like physically hit her. And I get out to the car, and I was smiling. I had a psychotic break, and I said, "They're not going to take me because I said I'm not going to kill myself." And I just said it like that. Yeah. And um, so the next day, that's all I remember is his parents coming, his mom coming. His dad was like blowing. Perk set with him a month before we moved back in together. Like, you, you knew he had an opiate problem and just kept facilitating it. His mom came storming in, said she was going to choke me to death, saying that I'm a murderer. I'm like, so where's the investigation? Just okay. Um, they only took his valuables, which really hurt me. He was a raver. He had all his raver jewelry, raver candy. His sister's a raver. Like, I had all of his sentimental stuff when I moved out I had all of his raver candy a scarf that he made his sister his sister when they were little like I had all of this stuff that they didn't even care to take they just wanted all the stuff that meant that was valuable like worth money that's how they were
1: yeah
0: and so then it was August 5th and this was like the worst my mom made sure I had a friend with me at my apartment and so uh, all I remember was I, and and your audience, you know, usually <laughs> every other time that I try to kill myself, somebody knew this one time, nobody knew that was the difference. And I went in the bathroom, took all of my Klonopin that was just refilled the day before, mm-hmm. took all like half of my bottle of Trileptal. I remember this visual and like, very visual. Thing. It's like, like a movie in my head. Um. And then I went in the bedroom, they didn't tell my friend anything, went in the bedroom, laid on my bed. I remember rolling off the bed onto the floor and falling on the floor and I was trying to pick myself up and I couldn't. Mm. And I just started screaming and then went out wow. and I was in a coma for five days and I ended up dying halfway through and I crossed over and uh, that was, uh, I don't know if you want me to go into that, that's that's cool with
1: you I will it's fine yeah no I totally want you to go into that can you talk about the coma experience yep um wrote a little bit about that and sent it over to me and I I read it and I was like holy shit this is fucking nuts
0: yeah um I was always brought up like protestant spiritual my mom was like a senator 40 years so she saw a lot of stuff and she's very you know energy connected things like this and it, okay, so on like the third day of the coma, I guess they wanted to see if I could breathe on my own. So they took the tube out. And I respiratory arrested for like over a minute and a half or so. And all I remember was like waking up. And it was like from like, a and it was like gray and white rippling. But all I could feel was like this love and this warmth and this safety. And... Um, I also believe in like out-of-body experiences, so this one kind of makes sense. But I saw myself in the bed, like in the, in the hospital bed, on four-point restraint, which how would I know that? And Dean was sitting next to me in, in the wheelchair, and he had his Dark Star hat on. He always had this specific Dark Star hat on, like okay. skateboarding. Yeah. And um, so then I saw myself from my own eyes. Like, it was like a shift of perspective. And he was sitting next to me holding my hand and he was telling me how sorry he was and how much he loved me. And I said, please let me stay. I said, please just let me, let me stay. I've been wanting to die since I was a kid, please. I've been trying to get here for so long. Let me stay, you know, he says, I can't, he says, I love you, but I I can't, I can't let you stay and I said, please. I said, look, I've, I've been trying to get here. I've been trying to, to die. So I just wanted to die for so long because I'm here. Like I've I've gotten over that. Like, and he wouldn't let me stay. And he's like, I'll be here when it's your time and I'll be waiting for you. But I can't let you stay right now. And I and I it was weird time-wise, you know, minute and a half here. Felt like tried to speculate over an hour up there. Or wherever it was, you know. And then I saw my Uncle Eric, who oddly enough, he died the night I was conceived. Hmm. And he's my guardian angel. Like I, I sang happy birthday to him at two and a half. Like I this you know, so I saw him and I saw my aunt Pat and then I and then I came back, you know, into the coma. And um then uh when I woke up from the coma, uh my dad told me afterwards. This is all you did was cry and scream, like just wail, like it just. I was a mess for like, like I could not, I couldn't function, yeah. couldn't even function for like a year or so after that. Yeah, like, I was well, in and out of psych wards more than usual. You know.
1: Was, I mean, uh, how do you even integrate something like that back into reality? Like that is just, I can't even imagine how next level, like spiritual that must have been.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, I'm thankful I have a mom who's very spiritual and, uh, has told me a bunch of different stories about experiences she's had with her own, you know? And so I had some knowledge and education, but I gotta say it was, uh, (laughs) i wanted to tell Catholics and be like, you know, you know sinner do like drug addicts people who kill themselves like even domestic abusers who are only are doing it because of other you know it's not really because they hate anybody it's like those people are forgiven and they do are able to go to a place of safety and love and warmth like i did i mean i killed myself like i haven't i'm not i'm not i haven't so it's just very interesting that it kind of proves you, and it also makes you kind of fearless now. That yeah. it's uh, I'm also not afraid to die anymore. I, I mean, if it happens, I'm not going to want. I don't want to kill myself. I don't want I don't want my death to be my own hands. But if I die, I'm not going to. I'm not afraid of it happening. You know.
1: Well, you've basically been there. Like, That's what I mean. You, like no. you've seen the other side that like no one else has, I mean, very, very few other people could possibly share that experience. That is just so crazy.
0: I'll tell you a, a quick story. My mom worked on a men's ward, in like, you know, 60s and 70s and stuff, you know, and uh, she'd always have this rich guy. And the reason he'd come to the wards is because he didn't want to pay for a private room. He was like that cheap, like one of those Scrooge you know, I'm rich, but screw my whole family and everybody. He was just nasty, nasty man, right? He cardiac arrested one night. And and he came, you know, came back and resuscitated him. Well, my mom was rubbing his back and he said, Um, can I talk to you about something? And and can you please not call like the the psychiatrist or there but back then they thought you were nuts to talk about that stuff and she's like sure my mom's very open-minded and he said when I when I arrested I I died and I saw my life and I saw how horrible and nasty and cruel and mean of a person I am wow and he said and I don't want to be that person and all of a sudden he started paying off all of his family's kids student loans He paid off the mortgage of another, one of the men on the wards, right? He was going to die of, he was like liver cancer or something. He was going to leave like three little children and a wife with nothing. Paid off that guy's mortgage. Wow. The family was like, what are you giving him? Can we take it home with us? You know what I mean? And he's like, they're all waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know? But it, it does change. Like, even though I was severely depressed afterwards and I didn't see it as like this I was angry at Dean for a long time. I was like, why didn't you just let me stay? You know, I hate you for this, like, why, you know, so angry. And now it's like I'm thankful because even though I don't know what my purpose is yet, there's gotta be some purpose.
1: Mm -hmm. There's
0: gotta be some reason, or else I would have just been there. You know, I would have been dead. So there's gotta be some reason. And that and that's like comforting in that way.
1: yeah. What is your purpose or reason now?
0: To be well, just finished school. I do acknowledge the fact that I'm kind of like a late bloomer in life of getting my act together. As it says in my twenties, kind of a crap, like a shit show. So, um, right now, my purpose, well. I don't know why you can say purpose. I guess I have goals instead of purpose. I don't know my purpose quite yet. But I'm also not hung up on the fact that I don't know my purpose quite yet. And I I think people get too hung up on that. They're like, oh, well, I need to have a purpose. Well, maybe your purpose is just being here and figuring out what your life is going to be and doing something good for others. Like this lady came into my store the other day and her entire house burned down mm-hmm. and her two kids are just they needed to get shoes and I'm like hey we're friends now use my discount you know what I mean like but just little things like that just being a good person mm-hmm. and I, I think people put too much weight into the purpose of things when it should just be your purpose is to be a good person and I think that should be and that to me is what I am doing now and I'm trying to get my own life better it doesn't mean that Oh, sorry, there's like so many different thoughts running through my head of, cause I I I bet a lot of your audience members that maybe like getting it together later on in life and stuff, they feel inadequate that I know I did for a long time inadequate to those who who are neurotypical who don't have these hurdles to climb. Like I had to explain this to my brother. You can take one step and complete something. I take one step, go 40 back, and then have to go another one for, forward. to go another 30 back. So now I'm 70, what, is 69 steps back or so? You know, it, it's a process. So I try to acknowledge that in myself. That it's like, yeah, I don't know if that answered the question, but I kind of go off, but the ADHD goes off a little bit.
1: No, yeah, I think that that totally... Answer to the question. Um, absolutely. I think just aiming to be a better person in general is something that a lot of people can strive for. And even if it's just a simple act of common decency or something, you know, it makes other people feel better and it mm-hmm. makes you feel better. And both of those things are important.
0: Yep. Definitely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you had advice for the audience,
0: what would it be? Um, all right. I have a question to your question. Okay. Would this okay. be advice to people who are like taking medications or people who are going through treatment or people who are not? Because it's very different, a very different perspective advice for each of those. Yeah, that's a really important point
1: of clarification. I think it would probably be really interesting to hear your advice for people who aren't in treatment right now, people who are maybe afraid of going into treatment or feel like they're not compatible with treatment. What would you say to them?
0: For the people who are afraid of going into treatment, um, I would say to you that even though it seems daunting and terrifying and I hated it. I went through 12 years of trial and error with all sorts of medications and symptoms and suicide attempts and psych wards and all, all sorts of things, you know. But you've got to just do it. And I know that's like it's, like it's easier said than none. But you just got to like jump into the water. You just have to do it. You just have to do it. and You can't let anybody else deter you from it. You can't be like, I've had people be like, oh, why don't you just smoke weed and take holistic things? No, that's not the way it works because it's a chemical imbalance in your brain. It's not something that you can just fix. It's not something you can just go to therapy for. Borderline, maybe, you know, you can't treat bipolar, which is therapy. You need a chemical yeah. to treat it. It's like diabetes. So don't just look at it like that. Look at a diabetic. They have to take insulin to be functional. Well, you have to take a medication to be functional too and that's okay. People have to take medications to be just because it's a mental illness medication doesn't make it any different. That's part of your health. And I and I really hope that people if they're feeling you know like I I get it. It's it's this this pressure of people just looking down on you because you have this condition, and they just think they they automatically judge the way you're gonna be and who you are. And I still have that with people, you know. You have just gotta be strong, and you gotta say, look, fuck the haters. I appreciate I got I gotta appreciate my health and my body, even when you don't want to or you feel like you can't. You just gotta acknowledge it's a medical condition. It's okay. You you should do it. Get a ther- start off dipping your toes with a therapist. A therapist will lead you to somebody if you need more treatment. That's the best. That's the best way to go. I think is is starting out with a with a therapist.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that starting with a therapist is great because therapists create more of an interpersonal relationship than psychiatrists do. Like if you go to a psychiatrist they're just going to want to know what medications to put you on. And it's not really a conversation. It's just like, hey, these are my symptoms. What can you do? What can we add to the cocktail? What can we remove? Whatever. It's a very like transactional kind of relationship. But with therapy, you can actually build a relationship with the therapist And if you really are having big issues that the therapist is noticing, they can refer you to a solid psychiatrist. And then at that point, you can get on medication if it's necessary. So, yeah, man, I wish more people would just seek out therapists. I think the world would be a much better place if people would just go to therapy. Even for like a mentally healthy person, I think therapy could be helpful in some ways. So. It
0: definitely is. Even just to vent all your stress or things that are going on. Even just someone to just listen to all you have to say and stuff and acknowledge you, that does even just that little bit helps. I was lucky I had my mom for all the years. It did. A lot of people don't have the same support system and benefits and resources that I do. That's why I'm like, people, if you got a kid or you know, try to to think about that because you're gonna get so many amazing resources for
1: it, yeah, absolutely I think that's really really great advice
0: and don't don't feel ashamed of it either
1: that's what it's there yeah. for, yeah, I mean, why would you feel ashamed? you're trying to improve your life and better yourself and you might be saving your own life by mm-hmm. doing it it's very uh i I hate using this word, but like it's brave. let's just call it what it is it's a brave move to uh to kind of put yourself in a vulnerable situation like that. And I hope that if there's anyone out there listening who's feeling afraid or has reservations about mental health treatment, just go for it. Um, you gotta, it'll, it'll, I mean, work, it. it'll, it'll work out.
0: It, even if it's like, because everyone wants you to live for yourself, right? But even if it takes one person who believes in you to live for until you can find yourself to live for. I had to do that, my mom. I swear, if I didn't have her, I don't know how I'd be here. Seriously, not just birth-wise, but in general, I don't know. Like She stood by me through everything, everything. So even though that in a way is somehow codependent, she's helped me become independent just just by her emotional support. So if you can find one person in your life who's your rock, even though at this point, you know, at this point in time, you must be, you know, in some way, codependent on living for that person in some way, find that, you know, I know that that's kind of a, it's a, it's a tough thing to say because you don't want people, you want people to think about themselves, but sometimes you need to think about somebody else in order to think about yourself and your own health. And then someday, you'll get to a place where you're thinking about your health and your own self. Yeah. And then you can care more for others.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's cool. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would like to talk about and any questions for me about anything or anything that we should expand on before we wrap up? I think
0: we I think we covered like all of it pretty much.
1: You've said your piece.
0: Yeah. I've said a lot. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. And, uh, oh, uh, really quick, do you have any websites or social media, any projects you're working on that you would like people to be aware of that we can blog for you? Um,
0: no, I, I mean, I did a proposal, a uh, final 20-page proposal in uh, criminal justice, my, research, my last research class. And I got a 98.21 on it from a corrections officer who also teaches crisis intervention training because I made the proposal for a mental health officer as a new role in law enforcement. It'd be someone who goes to two to four years, gets a degree in a social science, psychology, sociology, medical, then goes to academy because they're not going to carry the stigmatizations and the attitudes into that kind of into the field like that. Whereas you have a cop who gets CIT training. Yes, it's beneficial, but it's not going to remove all the prejudicial attitudes from it. So that's really the only project I'm kind of working on. My professor wants me to do it. He wants me to actually start implementing and proposing it as a profession.
1: So. That's awesome. That is a large scale, long term project. And it sounds like you are off to the right start on it. That's awesome.
0: Thank you. I'm excited.
1: Have you had any? Well. Um, have you had any interactions with police over the years?
0: I've <laughs> <laughs> a few. Not a
1: few. <laughs> I, oh. was like, I was like trying to think of the right way to frame mm-hmm. that i didn't want to be presum- oh,
0: funny <laughs> no this is funny um yeah uh uh so i've lived in the same town for a really long time and i've actually found out which is interesting talking about this is i i did um poll working election working in my town for 14 hours straight and the cops were like oh my god at like six o'clock i sat down they're like you just sat down i'm like what are you guys do it <laughs> So, but I was I was shooting the shit with one of the cops, and he was the cop that always came to my mental health calls. No. And guess what? He had a degree really? <laughs> before he went to academy. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but no, I had a lot of interactions with cops. Um the worst, and this is the only time in my entire life, I'll say this, we'll wrap it up, but the only time in my entire life I ever went homicidal. Mm -hmm. It was terrifying. Um, Since my my boyfriend, you know, Dean, he was domestically, you know, abusive. I don't watch horror movies, okay? I'm into all like, you know, friends and stuff. I don't watch horror movies. And visually, it it messes me up. I have very visual. I can't do math. That's why. So all visual. Um, And that night, that day, my new psychiatrist dropped me off all of my medications, all the ones I was on. And gave me only Welbutrin, which is an anti smoking medication. Yeah. I went home, watched two horror movies. Dean was screaming at me or something. I almost killed him. I went after him with a, with a kitchen knife. Oh my God. So he him and I were like fighting each other and we're like slamming each other's heads into like things. And the cops came, they grabbed me. I had two cops holding me on the floor. I'm like screaming. And freaking out, and it gets funny at the end though. And they drag—I'm screaming. They drag me down the stairs. They get me outside. It's like three in the morning, (laughs) and my roommates are watching from the porch. (laughs) The cops are patting me down, and I just scream. Don't touch my tits at the top of my lungs at three in the morning. It was like, oh man, it was a terrible night, but that was the funniest part. And I, like my roommate still would crack up over it later on. It's like, oh my god. But no, I, I mean, I a lot of the times, uh, cops are pretty cool with me. It was yeah. just very very calm. And I mean, one time I had um a, a boyfriend who, I had to call the cops on him. It's like a. I kicked him out after this, like a week after Parkland shooting, and he says to four cops, "I'm gonna murder everyone and then kill myself." They were like on their guns, like so fast it was unreal, and I'm just standing there watching him freak out. And at this point in my life, I'm like, I like myself. and am like. Yeah, you know, I was like, is, is that what I look like when I was a teenager? Like I was just like watching him. I'm like, wow. You know, when you see it from an outward perspective of that's how you behaved, and you're watching someone else behave that way. And you're like, you know, I look how much I am like grown now and like done so well now and composed. It's you know, it's very interesting to to see both sides of things. Yeah. So I'm done. All right, I'm done now. Let's, yeah, those are my run-ins with the cops. Yeah
1: oh well we can we can totally keep going on that tangent if you uh, if you want to
0: i don't have any more good cop stories cuz i was pretty you know chill with all of them
1: yeah i've had um various run-ins with the law over the years and uh, i'll say they're not all bad you know every once in a while there's a guy who's chill and like, sees you as a person and treats you with respect. And that's always nice to see from law enforcement.
0: And I think it's because they have those ones, like I said, it was very fascinating that that was the one that always came and he had a degree. It's having more education. When you're going into something and you know what you're doing, you're not as overwhelmed or skittish or erratic about going into it. So you have an officer that goes into it and they're like, oh, I know exactly what's happening here. And they know how to deal with it. They don't freak out and start trying to arrest and fight people. You know, they, they know they're treating you like a patient instead of treating you like a criminal. Whereas cops, they're seeing your erratic behavior and they think you're just being a criminal. They don't see that. They don't see the the mentality behind the behaviors being, you know, occurring. Yeah. Yeah, that's why. I had one cop pull me over on New Year's New Year's Day, like five o'clock in the morning. I was rolling face, and (laughs) my my passenger had never been pulled over before. I even though even as a pat, I was a driver, and this this cop and I shot the ship for 20 minutes about drugs.
1: Oh my god!
0: Had no clue, no idea that I was rolling face. Like, oh, have a nice day, happy New Year.
1: He's like, wow, she's just in a great mood. So talkative.
0: Oh my god, it was so funny. Just be nice to them, audience. If you ever get pulled over, be nice to cops. Just be nice to them immediately. Yeah. Don't get, don't get scared. Don't get all ooh don't try and, to and, play and, play and lawyer.
1: like just but, fucking chill out, and you can deescalate the situation. Wait. In my experience, 75% of the time, just being respectful and being chill when you're mm-hmm. talking to the police helps a lot.
0: Definitely. Um, they don't know how to handle it. You're super, super nice. Just like, okay, I'll give you this, blah, blah, blah. And, mm-hmm. and you have just, you're treating them like a normal like person you'd see any day, and you're not afraid. Of, they're looking to intimidate you. They're looking to yeah. get that scared behavior out of you that you're trying to hide something. They, they want to get that from you. But if you're just like, okay, go ahead, officer, how, here you go. Like, just, they don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to deal with it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So it's interesting. Kind of like reverse psychology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But
0: I'm good if you're good. I'm all set if you're all set.
1: Yeah. I think we're all set. So I'm going to end the recording, but it was such a pleasure having you on.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, was nice.
1: Thank you for listening to our latest episode. Your support means everything to us. Please be sure to tell your friends about this show. Bipolar Recorder can be found on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. I am on Twitter at HH Keegan, and you can also visit www.bipolarrecorder.com for more information about the show. My name is Hunter Keegan. We'll be back soon with new material. Until then, sit tight and enjoy your day, evening, or night. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com.
0: Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and
1: guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals.
0: Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.